Two weeks ago, I was here and did not offer a handout, and I'm not going to offer a handout tonight. But it's not for lack of preparation. You'll find it on the screen. But I really feel that I'm in this particular vein, and I would offer, if you will take notes, that will be important. And at least do your very best to remember the scriptures that I'm offering. This is not on the screen. I didn't, I didn't give our media folks this particular verse. And, and typically I would not ask for any particular response. But by the show of hands, and please participate, who, who, who remembers Hannah in the Bible? Hannah. Hannah. She does not have a book. And, 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 and just, you don't have to shout out his name, but do you remember her son's name? Anyone remember her son's name? Her son's name was Samuel. Now, just by a show of hands, what is her husband's name? Thank you. May put your hand down. Thank you. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. God. Because if you really want to know the foundation and strength of that family, you need to know that it was Alcana that propelled the family toward commitment. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the faithfulness of Alcana cannot be underscored enough. He went to Shiloh where where the Ark of the Covenant was, but where Eli the high priest was ministering before the people, except Hophni and Phinehas, according to the scripture, were vile and corrupt. They did immoral things. And notwithstanding their immorality, Hophni and Phinehas also took what belonged to God. Amen. And Eli did nothing. And he was silent of it. And yet, the Bible says every year, Elkanah was faithful to attend Shiloh and to offer a sacrifice to God. There was a lot of reasons why Elkanah uh, could have remained at home, but he did not. He had to wade past the myriad of issues in Shiloh, and yet he found the foundation of faithfulness. And when Hannah had a child... It was Elkanah that reminded her. He reminded her of her commitment and said, now you need to bring Samuel. Read it in your Bible. Now you need to bring, you must do this. You made a commitment. So we know of Samuel, who was perhaps one of the most unique um, individuals in all the scripture. Samuel was uh, the bridge of, of all spiritual influences. Samuel was the king maker. He was a judge, he was a high priest, and he was a prophet. There's no one like Samuel. But Samuel did not come up by himself. He was founded upon the commitment of his mother and his faithful father. And Elkanah doesn't really get the notoriety because most people know Samuel. Another group knows Hannah, and almost no one knows Elkanah. I speak tonight about the culture of commitment. 
Because commitment is not something that you do inadvertently. In fact, by virtue of its own words, defined in its own constitution, commitment is a full-time endeavor. Some people are thankful at Thanksgiving. Let me just tell you, if you're thankful at Thanksgiving, and that's when you decide to be thankful, you're not thankful. (laughs) Oh, no. This is really rough. We've reserved thankful Thanksgiving or thankfulness for Thanksgiving. True thankful people are not thankful just in response to what's happened to them. They're thankful because of what God has done, not because of the condition of their day. And thankfulness to them is not a holiday. Thankfulness is a condition of the heart by which they have chosen to be thankful. In fact, if you look at the perilous times that Paul wrote about, he's going to say all of these horrible things are going to happen. In perilous times, there will be men, lovers of themselves, all kinds of debaucheries, thieves. And here's what he said, and unthankful. He included the word unthankful in the perilous times. Oh my. The unthankful that will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unthankful that, that, that are without. This is... Um, part and parcel of of our first world um, society. I do want to share a couple of scriptures with you. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24 and 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant. Jesus said, whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall so find him doing. He's going to find him doing. Doing. I I like the idea of believing. Because people nod their heads in believing. But he's going to come for those who are doing. James wrote, faith without works is dead being alone. Show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. There's a part of this that, that includes doing. There's a demand of us to do. Who is that faithful and wise servant? He's the one who is doing the works. Uh, Luke 16, 10, I offer this in a different version. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. Hmm. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So a, 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 the, the liar who's a white lie, liar, whatever color code, I don't know how they got color coded. If, if people will lie on things that are incidental, they'll lie on anything. Once you cross that lie, line uh, of dishonesty, it, it, it permeates everything. But the opposite can be true, that if you're faithful to do small things, then you're faithful to do big things, great things. Because faithfulness is not a garment that you put on and take off. It's something that is part of you. In fact, it defines you. Now, uh, per my style, I suppose, I'll, I'll, I'll ask for you to just to arrest your attention and let me bring you through a couple of um, patterns, scriptural patterns and declaratives that the Bible offers to us. And we're going to find this out. This is the evolution of the faithless heart. And we find this beginning, uh, of course, this was probably before before the book of Exodus, but I want to show you just a couple of steps. I'm reading from Exodus 33 and verse 7. 
And it says that Moses took the tabernacle, pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp. Afar off from the camp. He, he put this tent or this tabernacle in a distant place. He called it the tabernacle of the congregation. Now that's very interesting because this same phrasing is going to be used in another portion, but it won't be pertaining to the same tent. came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord, are you reading that? Everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation. You went out to seek the Lord, which was without the camp. Here's all the people. But Moses set up this tent way outside of the camp. This is the first tent. This is the first place. And, and, and I, I, I give this the title of which Exodus 33, 7 offers the tabernacle of the congregation. I'm going to make it, I'm going to make a, a deviate, not a deviate. I'll make a, um, a explanation or a clarity of the next one. The tent, I'll call it the tent, but in the scripture it's the tabernacle of the congregation. And here is the small definition we'll use. It's the place that they pursued. They went out from their camp to go find God. Everyone which sought the Lord left their, their homes, their tents, and went out to the tent, the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. But in time, God gave Moses a description of a tabernacle. And we know this full well. We're not real familiar with the first one. The tent is not known. It doesn't have divisions in it. It doesn't have an outer court in it. In fact, the best we know from a theological perspective, is that the tent was just a large a structure that may not even had sides to it. Large poles, large structure, it's a covering. And that's where you went to seek the Lord. Now the tent predates the Ark of the Covenant. There were no articles, no, no laver, no sh- table of showbread, no altar of incense, The tent, according to the scripture, was this place where they went and prayed and sought the Lord. But there's an evolution taking place. Watch the hearts of the people who once started out as faithful, but they're going to evolve. And I say this uh, word, I use this word in in its most derogatory term. (laughs) You know I am the second child. Did you all know that? It's, it's not good. I have to restrain myself most of the time. And then comes the tabernacle of Moses. Even though in your reading you'll find the same term, tabernacle of the congregation. We identify it as the, as the tabernacle of Moses. Because within this tabernacle, we know this now to have dimensions. 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. It has, it has really three different rooms. It has an outer court. It has a holy, holy place. And it has a holy of holies, which is a very small room where the Ark of the Covenant was. And almost all the artifacts, all of them were made out of acacia wood. And the acacia wood was then overlaid with gold. And it had... And layers and layers of, of, of coverings on it and, and, and it had loops and it had outer poles and, and had a large altar of sacrifice and it had a gateway or a door to walk into it. This is the tabernacle of Moses. I'll read for you. Exodus chapter 40 verse 36. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in their journeys 
verse 37, but if the cloud was not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And this particular place was set in the middle. Three, uh, three tribes to the north, three tribes to the south, three tribes to the west, and three to the east. And they, they put the tabernacle in the middle of all 12 tribes. And that's how they lived. And when the cloud lifted, they followed. When the cloud stayed, they stayed. The tabernacle was in the middle. Now this, in this tabernacle, they didn't journey to go see him. And not everyone could go in. But this was a tabernacle made by instruction of God. Housed the Ark of the Covenant. But it was in the middle of them. So my heart does good that at the very least, they made their homes around the movable tabernacle of Moses. But we've changed now. Watch, we've changed. They used to go out and seek him. Now they put him in the middle. I'm still okay. I'm, I'm not distraught. But there is a difference between seeking him and putting him in the middle. And I'll, I'll show you this. Now the third place is found in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 21. And this is when David had, had gathered all the gold and all the silver and he had hired craftsmen of Hiram and, and, and cedars from Lebanon and had gathered all of this material and then brought it together. He was not allowed to build the tabernacle, but he had done almost all of the gathering. And then Solomon was tasked with this object, this, this purpose of, of creating this incredible temple. And, and when he concluded... Here's what 1 Kings 8, 21 says. And I have set there a place for the ark. Mm, right there. I put you somewhere. Wherein is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was a permanent dwelling place. Now they went from a place where they pursued to a place where they lived around and watched the evolution of it to a place where they visited we're going to put you in a stable place. I've set you here, God. Now, I'm going to do my own thing. I'll come back and visit you every once in a while. And that's the evolution that's happened, not just to those people, but from all walks of life and all generations of time, where even, even when you first find God, you're pursuing God wherever he's at. You do not believe that God is in a location where you have put him. You think that he's in your car. The, the, the new believer... The new convert thinks God is in, he's in my home. He, he's in the backyard. People are praying at work and they're praying at school. and They're seeking God at places that, that other people are not seeking God because they think I got to go find him. I got to find God in their pursuit of him. But then after a few years, then, then we just build our lives around him. It's good. I'm glad we're building our lives around him. And the problem with that is we prioritize God. If anyone ever says, well, well, the Lord is my number one, I have a problem with that. Because that means you have ranked God. You put him number one. Now he's vying for attention. Now there's a number two, three, four, five, six. Now you're number one, Lord, but I, you know, I've got a two through ten. I've got a two through eight. He ought to be the only one. But we've, we've categorized him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can do this all by myself. It's okay. I love you. If you're tired and your eyes glaze over, it's okay. Bring a neck pillow next week.
just want you to know that this is this this is a um, this is a pattern of people. It's a pattern of people. It's, <laughs> it's the pattern of courtship and marriage. Oh yeah. You brushed your teeth three times before you picked her up. Ten years later, you, you just pop in an Altoid. Ah, that's enough. Maybe. Twenty years later, you have no problem ordering the garlic cheese balls. Ah. <laughs> Oh, man, you start courting God. I'll tell you what we need to get back to. We need to get back to our first love where we think, i got to go find him. I'm in pursuit of him. I just don't want to build my life around him. I want to go find him tomorrow morning and, and tomorrow night in the afternoon. i got to find him somewhere. The, what's killing us is the casual approach. It's the casual approach to God. I cannot come with a casual approach to God. I don't come to you with a casual approach. I don't come here without notes, without color-coded notes, without studying and reading my Bible and knowing because I respect you enough to know I can't just shoot from the hip. I've got to hear from God and I've got to put it down and I've got to make sure that I'm in tune with the Lord. I've got to hear from God before I come to speak to the people. Why? Because I'm in pursuit of God. And you, you may not know this, and, and it's okay, I've said it before, but on Monday I'm groping, Lord, what do you want to speak to the people? Because it can't be my word. If it's my word, it's called humanism. If it's from God, it's called divine word of God. Amen. Otherwise, we're in big trouble. Otherwise, we just get one of those books that tell you what to teach all parts of the year and, and how to teach that, and we just go down the list. That's not of the Lord. We need an inspiration of the Holy Ghost. But we also need to study, and we have to make sure we know what God wants to say to the people. Amen. And they moved from pursuing the Lord to putting him in that place in the middle, and then they found a fixed location and yes, the Lord was there with them all the way. <laughs> oh, man. And because the glory of God filled the temple, so it was so great they could not enter. Many, many people, even to this day, do not understand the divine will of God and the permissive will of God. And there's a large difference. Because if I'm reading, I've read it right in my Bible. God said, I never ask you for a temple. He said this, I never asked. I was with you when you didn't have a temple. I didn't ask you. Now, I'm going to allow it. See, he allows, he allowed it, but he never asked for it. David wanted it. David went to Nathan. Nathan said, I think that's good, but then God spoke to Nathan. Oh, wait a second. I never asked for that. Now, I'll, I'll be in there. I'll, I'll, I'll be there. I'll anoint it, but I never asked for it. What I really wanted was your heart, and I wanted you to come after me. And David learned that later in life. As the heart panteth after the water brook, so my soul is hungry, panteth after you, O God. Yes. But this evolution now had afflicts even the, 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 the modern apostolic Pentecostal. So that now we have a fixed location. 
I'm not trying to devalue myself. I, I, I know what God's called me to be. But instead of hearing from God, we're waiting for the, the man or the preacher or the, or the person behind the pulpit to tell us what God is saying to us. Now, there is a word from God. It's, it's now. It's happening now. But there's another word that's going to happen on Thursday and Friday, and I'm not going to be there to speak it. But we put such reliance. Now, I know it's two, two sides. I mean, one side is, is, is my side where we think that only the Lord can speak to us and not to anyone else. I want to, I want to banish that thought. He tore the veil between the top and the bottom. He tore it down so that you could go boldly to the throne of grace and ask God what he wants. He didn't make it so that it has to bypass, come through me to get to you. I hope you don't think less of the pastor. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, 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 to boot myself out of a job here. But, but I do know that if you'll just open up your ears and pursue the Lord, he's going to speak to us on Sunday, I promise you. But he really wants to talk to you on Friday. And he has a word for you on Saturday, on Sunday. He has a word for everybody. I want to know, why are you waiting for Sunday to get a word from God? Why are you waiting for a conference to get a word from God? Why are you waiting for your favorite preacher to come by before you finally pay attention? The Lord is talking all the time. Amen. That's right. The problem is what we did, we, we put God in his fixed and we're saying, okay, Lord, you're, here's where you're at. You're at 7849 Wabash. I'll come see you next Sunday. <laughs> Boy, that's, that's, that's a problem. That's going to be a problem. People are going to walk in on Sunday and say, here I am, Lord. And the Lord's so good. Isn't he so good? Because he loves us anyway. He's going to keep us even though we're immature. You don't have to raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. He's going to keep you even if you have a bad attitude. (laughs) He kept me this far. (laughs) My bad attitude. (laughs) He helped me over all my junk and all my stuff. He helped me today. He's going to help you tomorrow. He's helped me to recover and get back up again. He didn't, he didn't hold it against me. He said, okay, come on back. Just ask for forgiveness. We're going to go on. He loves you enough. He'll bring you, he'll bring you right into his presence because he knows the fallibility of your life. He knows your weak and frail frame. God is so good to us. He knows who we are. He invests his Holy Spirit that's pure and holy and undefiled inside of all of us. Who deserved to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Raise your hand if you deserve. Stand up if you deserve to be filled with the Holy Ghost and you deserve the cross of Calvary. I say no. None of us deserve that. But the Lord was good to us and he did it even when we didn't know we were in sin. I like the word while. W-H-I-L-E. While. Even while we were sinners. While we were sinners, Christ died. While you were in sin, Christ died. Before you even recognized that you needed a Savior, he had already died for you. This is the power of the Holy Ghost that invested himself in us. And what are we doing? Well, we're putting him in a box. We're putting him in a little place. And we're saying, we'll come to you. This is the evolution. And what's happened to us because of that. What happened to us is that we become faithless and it's a lack of commitment because it takes a lot less commitment to visit the temple than it does to seek God in the tent. (laughs) Amen. And I'm convicted. (laughs) Oh, man. I'll offer just a few things here. About commitment. Uh, my dad 
told a joke years ago. I was a little kid. I thought it was so funny. I'd laugh every time he told the joke about the difference between uh, the participants of the breakfast, the chicken and, and the pig. <laughs> that the chicken offered the egg, but the pig gave his life. And I don't even know really how the joke went, but it's, those are the nuts and bolts of it. But Perhaps my father wasn't as funny as I thought he was, but man, when I was young, he was the funniest guy I've ever heard. Some, some people just give you an egg and scramble eggs, but you know, that's not real commitment, but you got a little bit of bacon. That, that guy ain't recovering from that. He, 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 didn't, he didn't come back from that one. If you're eating the bacon or the ham, whoever offered that, whatever, you know, I don't know. He, he didn't come back. And real commitment is giving something that you can't get back. But we, we, have, we have a generation of people, and they're not just one age group. It's all ages today. It's all ages. It's, they, they count things as commitment, but they're not really committed because these are offerings, but it's not totality. There's a difference between an offering and a, and a totality. <laughs> if you offer your body as a living sacrifice, whew, go figure what that means. Go, go try that out for, for, for a moment. A living sacrifice. Uh, we, we, we've got nice catchphrases and turning of the phrase and false concepts and ideas that appease us. But I would challenge the church tonight to delve into total commitment and the culture of that. Here I'll offer you three elements of the culture of a committed soul. Number one is the pursuit. The pursuit is chasing after something of value it's it's i'm committed to pursuing something of value when you do that uh it, it will it will come at a cost the the parable was that the man knew that in the field was a pearl of great price and what does the bible say he sold all that he had to buy the field all of the field uh, may not have been of great worth or value, but what was in the field was worth something of great value. So he took the field just to get the pearl. And to get that, he had to sell everything else he had just to acquire that one thing. And that is the, that's emblematic of the kingdom. Because when you're engrossed in the kingdom, there's going to be many things that come with that. Toils and tears and snares and briars and, 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 and fights and demonic things and flesh and carnality and worldliness and, and the own in, your own internal struggles. But to get it, you've got to sell out everything to get the field. And within the field, then you go searching for the thing of great price. This is reiterated throughout the whole scripture. I mean, this is, this is reiterated. Boaz is looking at, at, at a relative that's closer in relationship and kinship to, to Ruth than he is. Go read in your Bible that, that in the days when there's a transfer, 
<laughs> this is amazing. There's a transfer. They would take their shoe off and cast their shoe and say, I have ownership over, over you. That's why in the Psalms, when the Bible says, I cast my shoe over Edom, that means I took dominion or authority over that. And when, Mo, when, when Boaz is standing before the leaders, the governing men of the city, when the transfer comes, he says, I want the bride and I'll take the debt that's attached to her. And he became the kinsman redeemer and he took his shoe off, the Bible says, and he cast his shoe on the ground. Why did he do that? Because he said, I'm going to take the ownership over that. That that is going to be my bride, and it doesn't matter what comes with her. Whatever debt, whatever baggage, I'm taking all of that. That's the story of Jesus Christ. He is your kinsman redeemer. He didn't just take you. He took all of your debt, all of your grime, all of your mess. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's what he did for you. But it's a total commitment. Now, let me, I, I, I'm wondering, how could we serve a, a, a Savior who gave everything for us, but we give offerings and not totality to him? This is, this is a challenge for me. I'm looking at what are the elements to build this culture. It's, a, it's seeking after God. It's making sure that nothing gets in the way of me and the Lord. It's pursuing the Lord. I, I, I think that when, when a man is pursuing a woman for marriage, um, he'll do whatever it takes to achieve the bride. <laughs> Jacob worked for seven years. And I'm going to challenge all the young men and anyone interested in Alexandra, I've got a lot of yard work to be done for the next seven years. <laughs> it's biblical. I'm in the Bible, yes. We believe in the Bible, young men. How, how, how could this be? People become flippant. Well, well I just, I like her. We're, well, what did you do to prepare? Where is the preparation? Well, we just fell in love, and that's, yeah. And that's all you've got? You've got, a, you've got an emotion? Uh, try that out with Duke Energy. I, 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 go down to Meyer and tell them you're in love. <laughs> and on your way out paying the bills, just say, listen, we're in love. See how, see how many groceries you can buy with that. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 know, what, I know what the other generation talked about. You know, I don't even know who wrote the song. It's, you don't know much about history. Don't know much about biology. But I do know that I love you. I, that, that guy is dumb. I don't want him anywhere near my daughter. I do know that I love you. I don't know anything, but I love you. Well, go find out something and prepare I'll give you a test. And this is the woman he pursued. Seven years he worked. Seven years he, he desired because he was, he was convinced that she had value. And he worked for value and for the bride. See, commitment is, is one of the elements is that you are pursuing, constantly in pursuit because you find 
value. The second element, and I'm not exhausting all of this. There may be many more, is priority. These are the primary views, primaries. There's a lot of secondaries. Secondaries are all over the place, but there's only a handful of primaries. The enemy of the, of the primary is the secondary. And the primary is, I'll, I'll offer this to you, is to be saved. That's the primary. Because if you missed the rapture, as I preached a couple weeks ago, one day too late, you've missed everything. The, 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 the primary is to, is to be saved, not just at the end, but stay saved before the day. The primary is to be saved, to get saved, and to keep your salvation, and endure until the end. That's the primary. Everything else is inconsequential. I tell you, it's all inconsequential. And people don't believe that, but they will when the Lord returns, that none of it was worth anything. But if you, if you make the rapture and you're caught away, nothing that you did here will hold any value because you found your primary. I, d- I want you to know, you're not going to miss anything when you get to heaven. You're not going to miss your car or your house or your favorite. You're not going to miss any of that stuff. You're not going to, the favorite figurine or what you make. You're not going to miss anything because there is, a, there is no comparison to where you're living right now and where you are going. You can't even imagine what's going to be there when you get to heaven. In fact, when I tell you there's no more sorrow or tears or fear or pain... We can't even compute that because we wake up every day with some element of anxiety and pursuit and ambition in us and some kind of trepidation or fear. But in heaven, there's none of that ever, ever, ever. In fact, the freedom of that alone is in, it's, it's such a, another level. We can't even imagine what the feeling will be. <laughs> Amen. And the things that we value Pearls and gold and, and rubies and jasper and di- all of that are the basic elements like gravel and brick, rubble and stone. <laughs> so what are you pursuing and what is your primary? Now, I, I used to be a young father. I'm, I'm not a young father. I am a father. Um, I feel like I'm young, but these feelings are really misleading. Some of you tell me that age is just a number. You've heard that somewhere. Uh, Age is a number, and that number has significance. So if you want to lie to yourself and say, well, just listen, you know, 70 is the the new 30, whatever. If it helps you, we'll get you some medication, whatever. I don't know, whatever you got. I, I've, got a, I've got a thought for you that probably at 30, uh, you were not taking all those medications that you're taking right now. <laughs> but I just, I want you to know, if I, was a, if I was a young father, I'll tell you what my primary would be. It would be to, to make sure my children were in the house of the Lord every time the doors were open. That, that would be my primary. E- e- even when it was a struggle, let's get them here in the church. Uh, we, we, we had Roman and Reagan and lost our mind, had Alexandra 13 months uh, uh, apart. And we had Nico. And around that time, Scotty had Grant and Max 
his sec, he, he has two families. He has the older kids and he waited a long time, had the other two. And I can remember Scott and Jennifer sitting on the second row of the old building and all six of the kids were right there and it was chaotic. It was, they were talking, they were running, there was Cheetos everywhere, and whatever they were, Cheerios, it was stuff. And, and finally I had to stop the service and I said, if the Harpole family would just get up and leave this church, we might have a move of God. And, and on cue as if they were waiting for me, uh, my wife, my sister-in-law got up, dragged all the kids out and we just had a wonderful service after that was over. We, we understand what it's like. And if I, was a, if I was a young father and young Tammy and I again, I would, I would admonish you. It's okay. Fight the battle. Get to church. Even if you don't get much out of it because you're screaming, still come. Because that is the culture of commitment. That's your primary. I talked to a father years ago because he was leading his daughter in the wrong way. And I said, how long are you going to allow her to wear those kind of clothes? Until she is 10 or 11 or 12? How long? How long are you going to do that? Are you waiting until she has like this epiphany or, or, or maybe she's 15? Because if you don't start now, she'll never adopt it. Let, let, me, let me just say, how long do you wait before you introduce prayer at the altar? Well, you know, they're just with the young people. Why aren't they with you? Now, socialism has found its way into all of our churches. Socialistic welfare, this idea of spiritual welfare. I'm going to drop my kids off, you take care of them. Wait a second, that's not the scripture. That's not the scripture. You know what you just did? You created a temple, left God in the temple, and you said, this is where God stays, my home is off limits. No, don't do that. The primary is, we're going to have the Lord wherever we go, in the car, at home, at the school, at that place. In the field. Amen. I don't want you to wait until you get in here to start feeling the presence of the Lord. And I know that when we gather together, there's a powerful thing. I'd like for us to walk in with the presence of God and walk in with a testimony and walk in with praise. How about we walk in with glory and praise and a shout? I don't want the worship team to have to lead us into something that we're not already in, but we're kind of cold and indifferent about the third song. We're just about there. What are we talking about? That's putting God in a stationary place. That's not my primary. My primary is on Saturday, I'm going to love him. And on Monday, I'm going to love him. And through the week, I'm going to praise him. And in the morning, I'm going to pray to him. And when I get to church, I'm going to rejoice with the other people that are doing that. You ought to not wait till Sunday to get your praise going and your lips and your lips quivering and your hands clapping. What's the priority of your life? What is the priority? I, 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 I'm going to get to it for a moment, but there's a priority of, of your life and there's evidence, there's tangible evidence of your priority. There's all kinds of cultures out there. I, I saw a, there's, a, there's a sand dune culture where everyone brings their RZRs and four wheelers and thousands of people, thousands of people. They spend every weekend, they buy campers and camp all summer to ride on the sand dunes. <laughs> and and, and, it, and there's most of them are people that don't have a lot of money, but they've spent all of their money on broken down campers and, 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 and some kind of, some kind of, uh, machine, some, some, some kind of 
four-wheeler to, to enjoy themselves. It's a, it's a culture. There's all kinds of cultures in the United States, everywhere. If there's one culture that ought to exist in the church, it should be the culture that's modeled after Alcana. It doesn't matter. I'm coming to that church. I'm making a sacrifice. I'm going to serve the Lord. And at home, I'm going to remind my family of the commitment we made. Every once in a while, we get our kids together. Actually, it's it's on a regular basis. We talk about the culture of our family. We may not even use that word, but we're going to talk about commitment. The time, serving, seeking the Lord. Private conversations, family conversations. I preach more to my kids than I've ever preached in this house. And I know just from their response, and most of the time, their lack of response. I'm not, I'm not dissuaded by their lack of response. I'm going to tell you, we've got to have a commitment. We've got to be committed This is a life commitment, not just an offering. I'll give you a little time. No, Jesus was looking for your whole life, everything, all of you, all your thoughts, all your mind, all your body. The greatest commandment is that you love God with all of your heart, all of your strength, all of your mind. And you can perfect every other commandment, but if you don't get that one right, we'll find out what the Bible says about it. And the third is the purpose. It's the assumption this defines me. I'd, I'd prefer that you, if I could help you with verbiage, vernacular, that you don't say, I, I go to Brother Harple's church. It's not my church. What? It's not my church. This is the Lord's house. I, I, I'd prefer you to even say that you go to a particular location, but that you worship at a particular location. I know, I know it's a little verbiage, but, but the purpose is that this defines me. and It's who I am. It's not just what I do. This is not just what I do. What are you saying? This is not just what you do. You're not just a Sunday school teacher on Sunday morning. This, this is who you are. You are a teacher. You teach the word. You don't just worship on Sunday morning when the music's playing. You are a lifetime worshiper. It's, what the, it's, it's who you are. You ought to say, this is who I am. It's just who I am. In fact, when someone says, what's your religion? What's your denomination? What they're trying to do is saying, what, what are you attached to? Your response ought to, say, ought to be, no, no, no. This is who I am. This is my whole life is wrapped around this. In fact, I'm pursuing him everywhere I go doesn't matter where I'm at. I'm, I'm pursuing it. You can't be, I, 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 I'm, I'm using this Christianity, but, but I really want to say disciple. You can't be a disciple just when it's convenient. <laughs> oh, man. Because it's convenient to be a disciple in the right place. This house has the lights on. But when Peter was in the outer courtyard and he was accused of being a disciple of Jesus Christ, it was a lot harder to be a disciple when there was no help. I'm going to tell you, if we're really going to be like the Lord, we're going to be a disciple when we are not in the church. Because when you're in the church, we have a little subculture here. 
And that can get very confusing. People know how to operate in the subculture. We know what, when to clap, when to shout, when to say amen, and all the stuff. We got all that down. But when you leave the house, you ought to have, you ought to emanate with the presence of God. You ought to be telling everybody about the Lord. Even in this house, you can't even really witness. You can't even really witness. Every once in a while, we'll, 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 we'll bring some folks up and they'll give it, offer a testimony. But when I was growing up, there was a time in the service. In fact, it was sometimes the longest part of the church service where there was testimony service. Mom, Dad, you, it, was, it was good half the time. The testimony service was good half the time. But we know, come on, let's look back. We know a few people wanted to tell other people what was wrong with them. <laughs> And some people would just tell how bad their day was. And some people just, they didn't have Facebook. So testimony service was Facebook. If you want to know the truth, we had Facebook for a long time. Just, it, wasn't, it wasn't in the digital world. It was, people would stand up and say, one lady would stand up and say, it all started in like, she would give a year, in 1953. That was a long, that was a long, we knew we were long. My grandfather used to stand up and testify until my grandmother thought he, he had spoke enough. And she would tell him to sit down. And then they would argue. And he would say, Annie, they want me to talk. Look at the people. They, they're enjoying this. And she would say, Willie, sit down. You're embarrassing me. And then that would take about five minutes while they would argue. And, you know, maybe mom would rescue with a course. Mm-hmm. The problem is we reserve the testimony for the testimony service among the people that were already saved. And we didn't share the testimony in the places that should have heard the testimony. Because the place that really needs to hear the testimony is not in here. It's the people who don't know what the Lord did for you in your life. And have no idea that he's a savior and a healer and the lifter of your head. And I'm thankful for the testimony service. And I'm thankful for people that know how to give God praise for what the Lord has done. And it's good to share it among the people. But it's better that something defines you. That you say, my purpose of life is not just to testify among the people of God. But my purpose to be a witness to everyone that I meet. I ask you this. How many people can receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost this coming Sunday if no one in the church needs the baptism of the Holy Ghost? So if anyone stands up and says, I believe 20 people are going to get the Holy Ghost Sunday. Well, if there's not 20 people who need to get the Holy Ghost, then 20 people will not receive the Holy Ghost. And Billy Cole taught us a long time ago, if you want to have a Holy Ghost revival, you must find people who do not have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in tongues. If you want people to be healed, go get the sick, go get the people, go get the vessel that's empty. Amen. It's my purpose. I'm assuming. This is, this is my assumption. This is, this is what you're made for. This is, this is what you're made for. Paul said, I was called from my mother's womb. 
This is, no, when did you decide to be a preacher? I didn't decide to be a pastor or a preacher. God decided it from my mother's womb. I was crafted when I was born. This is what God wanted me to do. Well, what's your fallback plan? I have no fallback plan. I may not always be remunerated for what I'm doing now, but I'll never be lost without a job because people need to hear about Jesus and somebody needs to be baptized and somebody needs to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I have no, what are you talking about a fallback plan? There is no fallback plan. God made me to do this and he made you to be an apostolic Pentecostal in this final day of time. Amen. Amen. I'll tell you what, I'm going to tell you what, Samuel. I know you don't understand this yet because you're only a year old, but you were made to work in the temple. And on your second birthday, oh, someday you're going to be in the temple. And on the third birthday, Sam, young Samuel, can, can you get it? We're, come on, we're going to get excited. You're going to get to be in the temple of the Most High God. And at four years old and at five years old, they were prepping him a long time before they dropped him off at the foot, at the feet of, Sam, of Eli. Samuel was going to be in the temple. What if you woke up today and you got to your, your children and your sons, your daughters, everybody, you are made to serve God. You are made. You have a ministry. You ought to be telling everybody you have a ministry. You have a ministry. I've told all four of my children, you have a ministry. You do not have to be a preacher to have a ministry. That's just one part of the ministry. Amen. It's your purpose in life to spread the gospel. Let me, let me say that again to everybody. It's your purpose in your life to spread the gospel. It is not your purpose in your life to come and hear a lecture twice a, twice a week. I said this a couple of weeks ago. I, I'm going to be on this for a while. I want everyone to bring one person to church from now until the end of the year. Just bring, bring them one time. I would prefer that the first visit is not here, but at the coffee shop or at your home or at a restaurant. That way when they come in, they don't think that we're all just crazy and that you've developed a relationship with them. It'd be nice. Prep them. <laughs> a couple came to church. I knew that they probably hadn't been here before. I said, as I greeted them, by the way, have you ever been in a Pentecostal church before? No. I could already feel the prayers of the saints kept echoing out of the prayer room. I knew what Sunday night was going to bring. <laughs> I tried to soften the blow. <laughs> well, I said to them, do you ever seen people clap their hands? No. Well, we clap our hands and according to the Bible and we sing. And I tried to prepare them, but there was no help. I couldn't prepare them in the one, two minutes that I had. They lasted 23 minutes and they left. I hope they come back. It's not just inviting somebody. I was watching. I went back and actually talked to them a second time. No, no help. I think he was okay. I, I, don't, I don't think she was so enamored. Somebody start speaking in tongues around them. I knew. they Listen, if you're going to bring somebody, you ought to prepare their heart. You ought to prepare them for what they're about to walk into. This is a Holy Ghost. We're not going to dumb down the service. 
We are not a seeker-friendly church. Maybe I should cover that again. We don't, we don't succumb to the seeker. There is an audience. His name is Jesus. The seeker-friendly church dumbs down, dilutes the apostolic doctrine just to make everyone feel comfortable. Let me tell you, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable just for the sake of them feeling uncomfortable. And I think everything ought to be done decently and in order. But I'm not going to stop speaking in tongues just because people are uncomfortable with that. We're going to speak in tongues and we're going to baptize in Jesus' name. And I'm going to preach the apostolic doctrine. Because there's a big difference between a crowd and a church. Amen. Oh, man. Well, I, I'll, I'll end here, and this is going to take me a little while, but these are the five devaluations of the modern church. Number one are options. Everyone say options. Um, uh, my grandmother had a television. Uh, the television uh, had three channels on it, and it didn't, the, the, the antenna uh, didn't work right. When we would go visit, my grandfather once took the whole roll of, of, uh, of tinfoil and, uh, and made a big thing, uh, went up the wall there. And um, um, there was only, I think, UHF, I don't know. I don't even know what these, I don't know what the signals were. Um, but uh, today, the, the options are limitless. This is why, I don't know if you know this, but if you've ever gone to the restaurant Cheesecake Factory, if you've ever been to Cheesecake Factory, it has a book of, of menu items. Uh, there, there may be two or 300 options to eat. Cheesecake Factory and Ikea are the same place. If you ever get in an Ikea, it's like the Hotel California the Eagles once sang about. You can check out, but you can never leave. Tammy brought me to the Ikea store once, and I could not find my way out of the Ikea store. It said, this way to exit. It just, it's like a maze. Someone is above us looking down like little mice walking around a little maze in the Ikea store. Same thing, I can't go to the Cheesecake Factory. I know I'm missing out on what I really want, but it takes forever to read that whole book of menu. Don't go to the Cheesecake Factory. Just order a cheesecake. But even that, you've got a lot to pick from. I want three things on the menu. And if one thing says bell peppers, I know there's only two things left for me to order. (laughs) Options are killing us. Because we have options. Instead of God, we have options. Dr. Mogerman was a friend of my grandmother's. And I can remember going to Dr. Mogerman just a couple of times because we didn't have insurance. Why is it that third world countries see more miracles, tangible miracles, than the, than the westernized countries? I, I, this is what I think. Because we have the option of the doctor. We call the doctor before we call on Jesus. In fact, some of us never even call on Jesus. We just make an appointment with the doctor. But if you had no doctor and you had no option and you only had Jesus, we don't know what that's like, but the options are, they're they're destroying us. The options are killing us. Amen. And the options are choices that we allow in our lives. What are your options? We need to remove every option from our life so that we think, we know I don't have any other options. I, I, don't, I don't have another option. There, there isn't another option. And it's, it's, it's the option that's 
lays heavy weighs against our commitment. The second one is convenience. I'll, I'll do this quickly, though it demands much more time. Out of World War II, uh, the auto industry again flourished. And the auto industry became one of the most pivotal industries in, in, um, in the United States. It, in fact, it, it, no pun intended, it drove so much of the commerce um, above the Mason-Dixon line. In fact, Detroit with the big three, Chrysler, General Motors, and Ford, uh, had a tremendous bearing on, on the, uh, the economy. Uh, the, the, the Japanese at the time was not valued very much, but over time, they became a, a viable uh, competitor. Um, in the 70s, uh, there was, um, in the late 70s, there was a concern of fuel consumption. And, in, and by 1979, 1980, everyone thought we didn't have any more gasoline. And people waited in line for eight hours at a time in, in some places to get their tanks filled up. Um, 1981, we saw the same thing. And then there was a shift, and suddenly we have enough gasoline to propel us. In those early 80s, then, the unions became so powerful, so strong, that some of the industries there wanted to break them up. And so they started to to um, uh, break off pieces of their business. And so uh, they no longer made their own some of their own parts, but they, they farmed them out, as it were. Um, in those times, uh, uh, they were offering big buyouts to people, uh, so they would leave their, their place. And some of those buyouts actually even um, introduced early pension programs. And from that, uh, something happened. It was, a, it was an anomaly that had never happened before um, but in the United States, but had been a regular practice of many countries of Europe. We will, we will know them as the snowbirds. Snowbirds were people who had enough money to buy a home in Phoenix or Florida or Alabama or Georgia. And then during the winter times, uh, they would go down um, sometimes after Thanksgiving and then come back sometime around Easter if it was convenient. And this was happening because, um, because there was enough money. There was, there was income coming in. The snowbirds grew and grew and grew. And it was, it was all the rage in the eight, early 80s and then into the 90s. It was, a, it was a big thing. In fact, even today, there's a lot of this happening. Now, we know that it was happening long before that, but those were the ultra-wealthy that would leave New York and go to the Hamptons. But, but for the middle class, this was a, something that was brand new in the last quarter of the last century. <laughs> the snowbird. But the problem is, across denominational lines and even Pentecostals, the snowbirds were causing great havoc around the country. First of all, a small church of 20 people suddenly had 10 brand new people walk into their church. They came at Thanksgiving, and they were there for multiple months. At first, the pastors reported, we're so excited about this, this is amazing. But then when they left, they left a big hole in the church. The home church back up in Michigan or, or Wisconsin or in Illinois, they suffered because they lost 10 people of their congregation, Sunday school teachers and ushers. When they left, they, they knew that the new guy in, in, in the south, in, in the warm climate, he wasn't their pastor really, so they didn't, they didn't offer their tithing to the new church. Some offerings trickled here and there, a dollar, five dollars. They sent their tithing back to the home church. So the home church was supported, yes, except they lost all of their worship leaders or their pivotal people. Some of them even report they lost their keyboard player at the time, a piano player, 
was critical. We didn't even have a lot of keyboards at the time. I think, I think the big keyboard at the time was a Rolex RD7. Maybe my brother might know the Roland RD7. You had a Roland. Yeah. But the keyboard player might leave too. And so the snowbird left. And they loved it because they could escape the winter. The problem is, there was no such church found in the, in the Bible where people were seasonal saints. And it caused conflict because when they left, they left a hole in both places. The pastors in the south started to report, this is all denomination, started to report that they were, they were hamstrung because they didn't have spiritual authority or any kind of authority over the people who walked in. They were already of their own faith or belief. So the snowbird, because they had a little extra money now, they, uh, they had the convenience. And through the convenience, they started to hurt the church. Every once in a while, we'll have a snowbird walk in here. And when the snowbird walks in here, they never come and approach me. They never say, hello, this is my name, and here's my pastor. They never even ask if it's okay to attend the church here. They just walk in, walk out. Because they are arrogant and often feel like because we're a Pentecostal church and they are of the Pentecostal persuasion, that it's their right to come and be at any church that they want to be at as if this is an open restaurant. <laughs> no. This is, a, this is a big issue. It's happening all around the country. And as more and more people have two residents, sometimes three residents, they're doing this more and more and it's causing great trouble around the country. In fact, some pastors have actually stood up in the South and said, listen, we love you. We're thankful. You can't come here. You can move here and stay here, but you're not committed to this church. And we need committed people because when you leave, you're leaving a big hole. For four months, you come and we're all happy. And for eight months, we're lost and we're all sad. It's ripping the church apart. Amen. Now, as I start to speak with pastors around the country about this, they're telling me their individual stories, and they're not, none of them are very good. In fact, all of them are hurt by it. Because the conveniences of America and the American church has brought, brought great devastation and devalued commitment in the local church. Conveniences will kill you all day long. It'll make you soft. It'll make you weak. That's right. The more life is convenient, the weaker you become. We've never even experienced persecution. We think the devil's fighting us if we have a flat tire on our way to church. We think the enemy is against us if something happens to our refrigerator or the stove goes out or someone burns the cookies. <laughs> We don't even know what persecution is. In fact, we cannot be inconvenienced. Because if we're inconvenienced, that's trouble. I want, I want you to know that when you are committed, commitment means you're not interested in convenience because commitment is higher than what's convenient for you. All right. Now, that wasn't very well received, but um, that was point two, so maybe we'll find someone you like.
Number three is divested. It's, it's an interesting thing. To divest is to spread out. It's to, it's to divest your funds or divest your life. Or, 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 and and, in, and in, in the investment circle, uh, that, that could be a very good opportunity to be divested. But now today, congregations are divested with their time and their money. And so instead of making sacrificial uh, time for the Lord... They're appropriating their time and appropriating their funds. So not to give too much time or money, they'll give a little bit here and there. I'm, I'm going to make a statement here, and I think it's going to be okay. But I'm going to ask you, don't give money to anyone you see on television or on YouTube or on any televised or media ministry. Don't ever do that. You bring your tithing and your offerings into the storehouse. There's a lot of people, some in our church, you, you, you have been taken advantage of because you heard someone and you said, I'm gonna, I'll sow my $1,000 into that ministry. And you don't know who you're giving to. You, mm, I, I feel a little resistance here, but that's okay. I'll be here Sunday Make up for all the. I'm not angry. I'm 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 just I'm just I'm instructing the church tonight. If you have if you have funds, you give it to the missionary. We have missionaries coming. You want to you want to give money on on September the seventeenth, I believe. I believe it's the seventeenth. We have all nation service. There's going to be twenty three missionaries from around the world going to be here. The general superintendent of the Ethiopian church is going to be here. You've never met anyone like him. There are powerful men and women walking into this house. If you have extra money, don't give it to somebody you don't know. You give it to the missionary and they'll be here and you can give it to them. Hang on to your hundred bucks. This is what I found. I found, well, we're going to give a little here and a little there and a little there and a little there. And there's a nonprofit organization. Some of those nonprofit organizations are supporting things that are not scripture. So you better be very careful before you, you invest in things that you think that are healthy, but you diverse everything. And so, no, I'm not going to give it all. Listen, invest your whole life where you are and all your time where you are. All right. Well, number three didn't go over. Is, number two was worse than number three. Number four, familiarity. Oh, this, this is a big one. Because commitments now are being, well, this happened in the scripture. The great prophet Elijah, he walks by, he sees the young Elisha, who is obviously a young man with means. He has his own oxen, he has his own cart, and he has his own land. He is a young man of means. And the old prophet takes off his mantle, and he casts it on the young man Elisha. And then he takes the mantle off and puts it back on and starts to walk. And the young man, Elisha, says to the older, Elijah, I'm going to follow you, but first, let me go and let me say something to my mom and dad. Let me kiss my father and my mother goodbye. And this is what the older prophet said. After what I just did for you, how does that translate to us? And the light bulb came on because then he started to value who put the mantle on him and what that mantle meant. You see, the future 
of Elisha's ministry rested in that mantle. And I got proof of that. Because when Elijah was getting caught away by God, he didn't even know. In fact, maybe he was a little pessimistic. He said, I don't know if the anointing's going to come on you, Elisha. But if you see me go up and my mantle falls down, then you know. And sure enough, he saw the old prophet go up in a fiery chariot and the mantle fell down. The one thing that grazed his shoulder. Familiarity is killing us. We know you. Aren't you Joseph's son? Aren't your brothers and sisters here? Aren't you here? We know who you are. And familiarity to Jesus Christ caused this verse to be written. And he could do no mighty miracle, save, heal a few sick folk. Because we get familiar. We get familiar. And we dilute spiritual authority. And I've had people look right me in the face and say, you're just a man. I know that. I have a wife. (laughs) What are you talking about? You... Obviously have not met Sister Tammy. But you ought to be very careful now. I'm not God. I didn't die for you. Chances are, in fact, I'd like to live. <laughs> Jesus died for you. He's the Savior. But, but look around. Before you put your tongue in criticism on one another, just know Jesus covered that person with the, his blood. He died for them. This whole body, we ought to cherish one another. We ought to love one another. You don't know, but, but one day you're going to need your brother to lay hands on you. You're going to need your sister to lay hands on you. And they're going to pray the prayer of faith over you. You're going to be healed and touched and delivered. What you don't know is that they may be interceding on your behalf for your sons and your daughters and your grandchildren. And God is going to hear the prayer. I'm urging you, I'm urging you, don't get lost in familiarity. And finally, hedonism. And I'm sorry, I'm going quickly, hedonism. It's instant gratification. It's the pursuit of immediate gratification. This devalues us. This devalues us. I'm not always, I'm not, yes, the Lord answers, but sometimes he doesn't answer. Sometimes the Lord says, no, I don't like no. I like, I like yes. I don't like no. But what I really don't like is wait. (laughs) I can take yes, whew. Who couldn't take a yes? Oh, Lord, let me, let me have a brand new car. Yes. Oh, man, God's so good. Lord, let me have a brand new car. No. Oh, my heart's hurt. God's still good. <laughs> he's good when he says no. I just want you to know. He's, he's still Lord when he says no. And when he shuts the door, he's just as good as when he opens the door. But, but the problem is not yes or no. The problem with us is just wait a little bit. Hold on, wait. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Just wait. Because we lose something. Go, go remember the sermon, 2020, Lost in the Wait. Go look it up. Because sometimes in your, listen, the Bible says, in your patience, redeem ye your souls. Amen. But what's conflicting us is, I want it now. I want an answer now. I want a, I, I want a resolution now. And the Lord's not going to give you a resolution when you think you need it. He'll give it to you when he thinks you need it. He might put you through a season. It may be a long season. It may be a short season. But if you'll just stay with him, he'll lead you to and he'll lead you through. He won't, he won't leave you in that valley, but he'll lead you through it. But I cannot tell you how long it's going to be. I'm promoting tonight the culture of commitment. I'm committed. I'm committed. I'm not just giving an offering of time or clap, but I'm, I'm giving my whole life to the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. And all the people said amen.
Sunday morning and Sunday night is going to happen in this house. Amen. Bring everybody you can. Go find somebody. Talk to them about the Lord. Prepare them. Teach them. And bring them to this house. Praise God. Please stand with me now if you will. Jesus, I love you. I thank you. We need you so much, Lord. We're desperate, Lord. We've got to have your love in our life. I ask you, Lord, help us to be more committed than ever before. Help us to create in our own lives, in our own homes, among our own family, the culture of commitment, all-out commitment. I pray that in Jesus' name. Just close your eyes with me now. Lord, there are many things that are fighting the saints, warring against their attention. I stand, Lord, tonight to intercede for the people. They are so conflicted, Lord, I pray. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to remove all the things from our calendars that make war against our worship. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this house would be a, a committed house to the apostolic doctrine, to worship, to sacrifice, to prayer and praise. I pray for the homes that are represented here. I pray for our young people tonight, Lord, that when they come back, let the foundation be laid. Let them feel your love and let them be committed, Lord. I pray for deep commitments, lifelong commitments, the pursuit of of you, Lord. I'm asking you, Lord, tonight to help us, Lord. We need your help. I pray, Lord Jesus, the spirit of this age is waging against us. It's, it's, it's against the church, Lord. It's against all forms of holiness and commitment, consecration and righteous living. But I pray right now, Lord, that you would help us, Lord. I pray right now, Lord, help us not to compromise our faith or negotiate our walk with you, Lord. Help us to be fully invested, Lord. Let this house be filled with people that are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ and help us to be a witness to everyone outside of this house. I pray the prayer in Jesus' name, in Jesus' matchless name.